Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. Woo! All right, you can have a seat. Uh, so this is Super Bowl Sunday. So that's exciting to some of you. Others of you, maybe not so much, but uh, it's a big, it's a big day. Uh, the world, really, truly, the world is going to be watching, not just the United States, but the NFL and the Super Bowl has kind of started to become truly a kind of global phenomena. And uh, just a little poll to get this out of the way, and then we won't talk about it until the very end of the service, okay? So how many Chiefs fans do we have here today? Do we have any? All right. Wow. You, you are 11 o'clock folks because you were non-existent at 9.15. All right. How many 49er fans do we have here today? All right, you did show up at 9.15, not so much this service, okay. So, um, and I know a lot of you don't care, and I'm a Bears fan, and, and I talked to uh, a Dallas Cowboy fan after the first service, and they said, we can't root for anybody, we hate everybody, and so it's just like, and I know that's true, and, and some of you are like, I don't care about football, I think it's evil, I mean, so I know everybody is across the board when it comes to all this, but... But here's the deal. This year's Super Bowl, and I know some of you are like up on this. Some of you are like not up on this. Some of you are going, uh, what sport are we talking about here? So I know everybody's at a different place. But So this is football, uh, and this year's Super Bowl is between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers, and it may be the most watched Super Bowl in the history of Super Bowls. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is that there are all of these uh, compelling narratives that go with this particular Super Bowl. And let me just mention a few. There's a lot, but let me just mention a few. One is Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes is the Chiefs quarterback, and he is on the verge of some history-making stuff. If the Chiefs win, he will have won three Super Bowls, and two MVPs in his first six years of being a starting quarterback in the NFL. Just to put that in perspective, no quarterback, no quarterback in the history of the NFL has done that. Not even Tom Brady, arguably the greatest quarterback of all time, has not accomplished that. So if, he win, if Patrick Holmes wins this Super Bowl, it will put him... Um, at a level that no other quarterback in the history of the NFL has ever reached. That's the first thing. Uh, another story is on the other side, other team. Brock Purdy is the 49ers quarterback. And Purdy was, uh, some of you don't know how any of this works, but I'll, I'll try to explain this in a way that you understand. Uh, Brock Purdy was the absolute last person drafted in the 2022 NFL draft. Every year, 262 people are drafted in the NFL draft. And uh, so there's 262 people this year, then 262 people next year. Brock Purdy, when he was drafted, uh, uh, 2022, 262 people were drafted. He was 200 and, I mean, 262. He was the 262nd person drafted, which means that that all the teams in the NFL felt that there were 261 players better than Brock Purdy. They have a name, actually, for the last person that is picked in the draft. And they call him Mr. Irrelevant. And it's like a deal. It's not, not, just, like, not just him. Like, it's a deal. Like, when the 262nd person comes up onto the stage... Uh, wherever the draft is taking place, uh, they have like uh, a jersey and people clap and the jersey says Mr. Irrelevant 
on the jersey. So that's the stigma that you take into the NFL. And now Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, is playing for the Super Bowl. And if Brock Purdy wins this Super Bowl, he will first of all be only the fifth quarterback in the history of the NFL to win a Super Bowl in his second season. This is his second season. And he will be the only quarterback in the history of the NFL to have won a Super Bowl being drafted that low. So that's so there's the there's the Patrick Mahomes narrative, there's the Brock Purdy narrative. And then there is the <laughs> Then there is the Taylor Swift <laughs> Travis Kelsey narrative. All right. So for those of you who have spent the the past 6 months on a deserted island with nothing but a volleyball named Wilson. <laughs> Little shout out to Castaway there. Taylor Swift is dating Travis Kelsey. Travis Kelsey is the future Hall of Fame tight end uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs. And she is going to be at the Super Bowl. Like there was all of this anxiety about she had a concert in Tokyo and will she make it back and like all the people that were anxious like don't get time zones like they don't know how that works and she got back last night west coast time so she'll be at the Super Bowl and uh, her presence just in football and certainly at the Super Bowl has brought an entirely new demographic to the game. Tanner and Landry, my 12-year-old and 10 -year, almost 10-year-old granddaughters, are super excited in this year's Super Bowl. And it has nothing to do with Brock Purdy. Can I just say that? It has nothing to do with the defense of the Kansas City Chiefs. It has nothing to do with McCaffrey. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with this. And, and she has brought... Uh, a whole new demographic into the NFL. Now, when you combine all, all those narratives, when you combine all those narratives with uh, the halftime show, uh, which features Usher and, and whoever else he brings, and there's lots of uh, you know, things going out, like who's he going to bring on to the stage, uh, you got all the Super Bowl ads that, you know, they've already been out, people have seen some of them, but still people get super excited about the Super Bowl ads. Um, it becomes it becomes must much wa uh, must watch TV. Now, not only will it probably be the most watched Super Bowl ever, it will be the highest priced Super Bowl in terms of tickets ever as well. Seventy percent up from last year. Just to kind of put it in perspective, tickets on StubHub range anywhere between six thousand dollars. For the cheap seats, like up in the rafters, like as far away as you can get from the field, all the way to $125,000. And that's just regular seats. That's not the suites. The suites are going for millions of dollars. That's just individual seats, $6,000 all the way to $125,000 a ticket. So basically about half the price of a Taylor Swift concert ticket. So anyway... So that kind of puts it, in, puts it in perspective for you. So this is going to, be, uh, it's going to be a huge party. Lots of people are going to be watching. But I just want to say today that uh, this party uh, pales in comparison to another party. This party pales in comparison to the heavenly party that breaks out Every time someone who is lost is found. Yeah. The, the heavenly party that breaks out every time someone who is broken is restored. The heavenly party that breaks out every time someone who is dead in their sins is raised to life to Christ. Like that is the greatest party 
of all time. That's a party that never ends. That's a party that every single person in the world is invited to. That is the greatest tailgate party that the world has ever seen. And in Luke 15, it talks about this this heavenly tailgate party. Uh, Jesus tells three parables in Luke 15. One is about a lost sheep, one is about a lost coin, one is about a lost son. And all three of the parables are in response to something that we read about in the first two verses of Luke 15. And this is what we read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. I just, I just want to say, and I've said this before, if you were living in the first century and, um, and, and your life did not necessarily reflect God's best for you, and you met Jesus, you would like Jesus. You would want to hang around Jesus. And Jesus would want to hang around you. He would like being around you. And so all of these uh, tax collectors and sinners are hanging around Jesus and um, they're wanting to hear what he has to say, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, basically the religious leaders, they, they mutter. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anyone mutter against you, but I've had people mutter against me. You've probably had people mutter against you. They mutter against Jesus. And what they mutter is this. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the Pharisees are muttering about the fact that Jesus is hanging out With this group of people, he's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He's developing meaningful relationships with people who don't behave the way that he behaves. He's hanging out with people that don't believe the same things that he believes. And the Pharisees are blown away by the idea that Jesus would want to hang out with people like this. So in response to the muttering of the Pharisees, Jesus tells these three parables. These Some of you are very, very familiar with these three parables, and you forget, maybe, why did Jesus tell these three stories? And the reason that he tells these three stories is he wanting these religious leaders to understand why he's hanging out with who he is hanging out with. And the first parable is about a lost sheep, and it says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. Now, we don't know what transpired uh, with this particular sheep that caused this particular sheep to leave the safety of the flock and to head out on its own, but it did. And when it did, it put itself in a very vulnerable position because sheep were easy prey for wild animals. That's why it was so important for them to stay with the flock and have uh, the shepherds around that could protect them and ward off Uh, the wild animals and all that. They're easy prey for wild animals that could easily devour them. So this was a sheep that desperately, desperately, desperately needed to be rescued by the shepherd. And that's what the shepherd is intent on doing. Doesn't matter that the shepherd has 99 other sheep. That doesn't matter. He leaves the 99. He goes after the one. And it's not because he, he doesn't care about the 99 sheep it's just that the 99 are safe and this one sheep is not now in his pursuit of the one the shepherd does not abandon the 99 like sometimes when we read this story and i've heard this story even preached this way is that it almost becomes a like of a spec a spectrum is that either you Either you give attention to the 99, and the more attention you give to the 99, the less concerned you are with the one, or you give attention to the one, and the more attention you give to the one, the less uh, you care about the 99. But that, that isn't the case for God, and that's not the case for a shepherd who's looking for a lost sheep. This shepherd would have done what any shepherd would have done in the first century of Palestine. He would have asked someone else to keep an eye on the 99 sheep that are safely grazing in the field so that he could go in search of this one sheep that is lost. 
And then when he finds his sheep, here's what we find out. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends. You're going to see a trend in all three of these stories. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, this is Jesus now talking, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Now we're going to kind of unpack that just a little bit. First of all, Jesus is reminding the Pharisees that God is like the shepherd in the story. That's the point that he's wanting them to do. God is like the shepherd in the story. God cares about lost sheep. God doesn't ignore lost sheep. He doesn't ignore people that are far away from him. He cares about people that are far away from him. He cares about people that have gotten away from home. He cares about people that have gotten away from the flock. He goes after them. He pursues them. That's, that's why Jesus, this is the point, see, he's responding to why are you hanging out with who you're at? He's saying, the reason I'm hanging out, that's why I'm hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, because God wants lost sheep to be found. And not only does God go after sheep that have gotten lost, he celebrates when the same sheep that is lost is found. When the shepherd finds the lost sheep, there is immediate, immediate joy. He, he, he puts the, the sheep on his shoulders. He carries the sheep back to uh, the rest of the flock. He invites all of his neighbors to come over and join him for this huge party. He wants them to experience the joy that he is experiencing because there's this sheep that was lost that has now been found. Then Jesus reminds the Pharisees and us that there is this incredible tailgate party that breaks out in heaven when even one, one person is found. Let me just read that passage again. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, it's easy to read that verse. More rejoicing in heaven over, not, over one person who needs to repent than over 99 who don't need to repent. It's easy to read that verse and to think the same thing that the Pharisees probably thought when they heard Jesus say it. The Pharisees probably thought that they were in the group that did not need to repent. Like they know that Jesus is telling a story for a reason. They don't quite understand really what he's trying to say. But as soon as he talks about the people that don't need to repent, they're like, we're here. Like we, we're in that group. So if that's the 99, that's us because we're the people that don't need to repent. Repenting is for those who have really messed up. Repenting is for the tax collectors and the sinners. Repenting is for people who have really, really screwed up their lives. Like that's who repenting is for. But if you go there, you miss the whole point of what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus is not saying that it's just the sinners and the tax collectors that have gotten lost. He's wanting the Pharisees to see that they've gotten lost as well. That they may see themselves as righteous people who do not need to repent. But the reality is that they have gotten lost as well. They have gotten lost in their own righteousness. They've gotten lost in their own self-righteousness. That when he talks about the 99 that don't need to repent, he's not saying truly there are people that don't need to repent. He's saying that's how you see yourselves. You see yourselves because you've gotten lost in your self-righteousness. You've gotten lost in your righteousness. Isaiah reminds us that all of us are in fact lost sheep that need to be rescued in Isaiah 53 when he says, we all like sheep have gone astray. All of us. Every single person on the planet, every single person that has ever lived, we all, we all, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. In other words, part of our lostness, Isaiah is saying, is our tendency to pursue things that are not God and attempt to feed our own soul. So it may be the pursuit of status, it may be the pursuit of wealth, it may be the pursuit of accomplishments or the pursuit of success or the pursuit of a certain relationship or the pursuit of the perfect family or the pursuit of Mr. Right or the pursuit of Mrs. Right or whatever it is. Like we tend to stray away from the shepherd in an attempt to feed our own soul. That's just the plight of humanity. 
That's what came with the fall, is our tendency to pursue that which is not God as an attempt to feed our own soul. Which means that all of us, all of us, need to be honest about the behaviors and the attitudes and the words that we have spoken that we need to repent of. And maybe as you do a little inventory today, maybe this is a good time to kind of take a step back and do a little inventory and, and just about what's going on in your life right now. Behaviors in your life, the attitudes in your life, the words in your life, the approach to things in your life, and to kind of say, well, what's going on in my life? Or I like the, lots of good things that are happening in my life, lots of things that I think is what God calls me to be and calls me to do. But here, here are some areas where we're probably... Um, this is some stuff that I need to repent of. Not so that you can grovel in guilt, but so that you can get rid of guilt. Like, that's what repentance is all about. Like, when we talk about repentance, sometimes we get this sense that when we talk about repentance, that we're talking about groveling in our guilt. It's just the opposite. Like, when you repent, you don't grovel in your guilt. You get rid of your guilt. You get set free from your guilt. Is the only way that you can actually deal with your guilt in a healthy way. It's the only way that you can, can actually live the life that God has created us to live. We're going to have Ash Wednesday service this, this Wednesday. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of dealing with this issue of, of repentance as we move toward the cross and Easter. And, and the whole point, the whole point is not to grovel in our guilt. The whole point is to be set free from our guilt. It's to get rid of our guilt. That's what repentance is all about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, religiosity and morality permits no one to be a sinner. Everyone wants to conceal his sin from himself or herself and from others. But it is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the religious to understand. The grace of the gospel confronts us with truth and says... You are a sinner. You are a great, desperate sinner. Now, come as the sinner you are to God who loves you. The mask that you have to wear before everyone else will do you no good before him or before your brothers and sisters. So confess your sins to one another and be healed. Confess your sins to one another and be set free. Confess your sins to one another and get rid, be rid of those and the impact that they have on your life. That's the first parable. The second parable Jesus tells is a parable of a lost coin. And it continues this same theme. It says, suppose a woman has ten silver coins, loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds that lost coin? Now, the coin that the woman loses most likely was a drachma. A drachma was an ancient silver coin that was about, it was worth about one day's wages for a common labor. That was about the amount of money. And this one coin is a part of a bunch of coins that this woman has that represents probably the family's savings, like the savings that would be needed in times of financial hardship or, or, or stress or loss of income or something that comes up they need to deal with. Now, drachmas were, uh, just in terms of the coin, were heavily dished and were irregular, like they weren't round, they weren't circular. So she knew that it couldn't have rolled very far. Like if she dropped it, she knew it didn't go very far just because of the shape of the coin. But it would be hard to see it in her house because in the house of a lower income person like herself, probably there were no windows in the house. There was one small door in the front. So even in the daylight, it was dark in the house. So she lights a lamp and she gets a broom and she begins to sweep, sweep, sweep that house until she can either get a glint of that coin uh, that's reflecting off the lamp that she has lit or hear a kind of tinkle from that coin because she sweeps it up with the rest of the dust that's on the floor, but she sweeps and sweeps and sweeps and is unwilling to stop until she finds the coin. And when she finds the one coin, she does the same thing that the shepherd did 
when he found the lost sheep. It says this, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together, just like the shepherd, and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, Jesus is reminding the Pharisees, and he's reminding us that, again, there is this incredible, heavenly tailgate party that breaks out in heaven when even one person, one lost person is found. Even when one broken person is restored, even when one person who is dead in their sins has been made alive in Christ and is raised to life in Christ. Now here's the deal. In telling these stories, Jesus is not just reminding us that at, at times we get profoundly lost. He is also reminding us that we are infinitely valued. So not only with the parables is he reminding us we're lost, we need to repent. He is also reminding us that we, have, we are of infinite worth infinite value to the God of the universe. That we are the sheep that the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after. We are the coin that the woman turns the house upside down in order to find. And knowing that you are lost and knowing that you are valued in God's economy cannot be separated. Like, if you know you are lost, but you don't understand how much you are valued by God, then you will live in perpetual guilt and condemnation. And that's how some people live their lives. Like, they, they, get, they get the fact that they are lost. They just don't get the fact of how valued they are by God. And maybe that's been you at some points in your story where you got the you got the fact that you were lost. You just didn't get the fact of how valued you were, of what a person of worth you were to God. And it causes us, when that happens, to live in a kind of this state of perpetual guilt and condemnation. And if you know that you're valued by God, like you know that God values you, but you don't know that you're lost, then you will become convinced that somehow your value is tied to your performance. So when you perform well, you will feel especially valued. And when you perform poorly, you will not feel as valued. And you will, you will feel as valued as your most recent performance allows you to. Now, not only are we the sheep that the shepherd leaves the 99 to go for, and the coin that the woman turns the house upside down to find. Jesus also says that we are the lost son that the father runs to embrace. And this is how Jesus describes it. it says, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now his share, this is the part we sometimes forget is that he's the younger son. The older son got the majority of the estate. This is the younger son. So even his share was just a fraction of what the older son's share would be. But he says, I want that. I want that now. So, he, so the father divided his property up between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, he's out of money. There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that even the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. Now, this is about as lost as this young man could get. He has alienated himself from his family. He has alienated himself from his father in particular. He has no money. His friends are gone. They've left him a long time ago. There's a famine. He's starving. He desperately needs a job. And the only job he can get is feeding pigs 
which is the worst possible job a Jewish young man could possibly get. And when he finally recognizes, like, I don't think this is where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> like, when he finally recognizes his lostness, and I think for all of us, that's the place that we eventually have to come and do. We recognize our loss. When he finally recognizes his lostness, he decides to go home. And he decides to go home and not kind of go back with the status of being the son of his father, but to go back. He doesn't feel like he deserves that. He's not worthy of that. So he begs his father. He's going to go back and beg his father just to give him a job, just to make him a common laborer, just a hired hand. And so he makes his way back to his father. And this is what happens next. Some of you are so familiar with this. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, which meant that his father was looking for him every day. And his father was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Now, at this point, this son is about as unceremonially or about as ceremonially unclean as you could possibly be. He's been, he's been working with pigs. He has come straight from that job. And that would have made him incredibly ceremonially unclean. Unclean, And normally it would have been weeks before he could even be touched by anyone. You know, just for anyone to come close to him. But the father doesn't wait. The father doesn't wait. The father doesn't wait for him to clean up. The father doesn't wait for any kind of cleanliness period to take place. The father just runs to him embraces him even in all of his impurity. The father throws his arms around him, kisses him, welcomes him home. And Jesus is reminding us in this story that the same is true for us. That when we finally realize that we are lost, when we finally repent of our sin, let God doesn't wait for us to clean up before he throws his arms around us and welcomes us home. He embraces us even in the midst of our impurity. He embraces us. He throws his arms around us even in the midst of our brokenness. We don't clean up so that God will embrace us. God embraces us so that we can experience what it feels like to be clean. That's what keeps so many people, I talked to someone after the first service, it's what keeps so many people sometimes far away from God is there is this sense because of the narrative of their life up to this point that somehow something needs to change in their life before they can really be embraced by the Father. I was talking to someone after the first service and I said, what's your greatest fear? And their greatest fear is this. Their greatest fear is that somehow there was this unworthiness to be embraced by the Father. But the reality is that we don't, this is what Jesus is talking about here, that we don't have to clean up in order to be embraced by the Father. That, that we are embraced by the Father so that we can experience then what it even feels like to be clean. Like it's only when the Father embraces us. It's only when our Heavenly Father wraps His arms around us that we even begin to understand what it feels like to be clean. And then the Father does the same thing that the shepherds did. The shepherd did when he found the lost sheep and the same thing the woman did when she found the lost coin. He throws this party. And this is what we're told. The Father says to His servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on Him, Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. Let's have a party. It's an incredible response on the part of the father. The son's tattered garments are covered with the best possible robe 
his feet that have made this long journey back home barefoot are, are covered with sandals. His hand that has been feeding pigs is decorated with the finest ring. His emaciated body is nourished with the fatted calf that will be served at this amazing feast that is being thrown. And everyone is like super excited about everything that's taking place. Everyone is super excited about the fact that the son is home. They're super excited about how the father has responded to the son. They're super excited about the fact that there is this feast, this banquet that they're all going to get to go to, and it's this huge party that they're going to be a part of. Everyone is super excited about that except for one person. The older son. This younger son's older brother. Now, there are always going to be like tensions, right? Between older siblings and younger siblings. That's probably true in your family. If, if, if they're sitting here today, don't point to them. But it's probably true in your family. It was certainly true in my family. Some of you know, like my family was three sons uh, born to D.C. and Orel Stafford. And uh, Gilbert was the oldest. And then about three years later, uh, four years later, Larry was born. And then 13 years later, on Larry's birthday. That's right. I was his birthday present. Little Rodney is born. And... Uh, you know how when families get together, you know, at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and there's stories that float around. Well, you know, these were the stories that floated around, is that Gil and Larry would talk about how good I had it and how different mom and dad were when they were little kids and how they are now that I've come along and I'm a little kid and how I get away with everything. And I got everything. I get away with everything. All of that. My, my favorite comedian is uh, Nate Bargatze. I don't know if any of you have. Yeah, some of you follow him. He is absolutely incredible. He's going to be actually at Eagle Bank Arena in a couple of weeks. Uh, I hope you go. I'm planning on going. I think it's going to be incredible. And uh, Nate is 10 years older than his sister. And he does this whole bit in his stand-up routine. He does this whole bit about the difference between being the oldest child and being the youngest child. And uh, I, I would never pretend to try to, to try to be him, but I just want to give you just a little section of what he says in one of his stand-up performances. He says, my sister, who is 10 years younger than me, was apparently raised by her best friends. She has no fear of them. She'll tell them they suck to their face. And I'm mortified. I say, you can't talk to them like that. But she does whatever she wants. When she turned 18, she got a tattoo. And I said, you're going to get in pretty big trouble when they find out. And she said, I'm 18. I can do what I want. And he said, well, I'm 28, and I'm still hiding wine, so I don't think you can. <laughs> two kids, same family, two different sets of parents. So there's this normal older sibling, younger sibling stuff that happens, but that's not what's going on in this parable. In accordance with Jewish custom, the father had already transferred ownership of the estate to the older son. And again, like I say, he, he got the majority of the, state, the, the estate. The younger son, when he said, I want my share, his share was, again, just a fraction of the share. And he got it. But the older brother, he got most of the estate. And it had already been transferred to him 
which would take effect at the time of the father's death. But until then, the older son must continue to work under the authority of the father. And all of this, him working under the authority of the father, all of this is happening while the younger son is off doing his own thing. So when the father implores the older son to come into the banquet, so the, his younger brother has come back, he's gotten the robe, he's gotten the ring, he's gotten the sandals, he's gotten the party, he's gotten the fatted calf, he's got all of that. There's this huge feast that is taking place. Everyone is there. Everyone is celebrating. Everyone is celebrating what has happened, a son that has come home. They're celebrating the fact that just they're having this feast. It's an awesome time. But the older brother won't go in. And, and he's, he's ticked at what is going on. And basically... I won't, we won't read all of that text. It's a significant portion. But basically what he does, he tells his father that, that he's been like a model son for all of these years. He's worked incredibly hard to keep the family business going. He's been faithful. He's been there, all of that. He's done everything that his father has ever asked for him uh, to do. He's done all of that. And yet he's not even ever received a little party, much less a huge party like this. And then in what I think is the section of Luke 15 that kind of ties together everything that Jesus is trying to say in the chapter. In the parable, the father gently reminds his older son um, that just because he's made good decisions, just because he's been faithful, just because he's been there, just because he's done good things and behaved in a good way, he gently reminds him that it doesn't mean that the father now owes him something. He's just doing the right thing. It doesn't mean that the father now owes him something. The inheritance he's receiving as the older son, the father reminds him, is still a gift. Yeah, it's a gift that typically goes to the, older, the oldest son, yeah, it's typically the inheritance that gets passed down. But it's me passing down my inheritance to you. It's my gifting of all of this that is mine. It's my gifting of that to you. This is a gift that I'm giving to you. This is an act of grace that... I'm giving to you. This is something that is not yours that is being given to you. The inheritance that he's receiving as the older son is a gift. It's an act of grace, just like the party that he's throwing for the younger son is a gift. Is an act of grace. He's saying, I want you to understand, son. I know that you have made better decisions. I know that you have been there. But I don't want you to look at your younger brother and say, Oh, my dad's showing grace to him, but not to me. He's saying, this is all grace. This party that I'm throwing for your younger brother, that's an act of grace. This inheritance that I am giving you, that's an act of grace. It's all grace. All of it is grace. Now, 
as you read this story or you hear this story today, you know, we, we read stories in the scripture and there's always a kind of a desire to say, okay, well, who am I in the story? And who does the author of the story like want me to identify with? Who does God want me to identify with? Like, which character am I in the story? And we do that with this story. And I've even heard it like preached that way. Like, well, you know, some of you are, are, are younger sons. And, uh, and some of you are older sons. And the younger sons, you need to kind of deal with this. And older sons, you need to deal with this. But the reality is, if you're like trying to figure out, well, like, who am I in the story? Am I the younger son? Am I the older son? Like, who am I in the story? The answer is both. Because sometimes we are the younger son who makes stupid decisions, all of us. Sometimes we're the younger son that makes stupid decisions, that goes far away from home, that gets distanced from our father, that feels like God is a million miles away. And maybe some of you are like in one of those seasons right now. Where it's like there's been a time where you felt like at home. You've been a time when you felt like closer to the Father. But right now is not. Like there's some decisions that have been made, some things that you've done, some words that you've spoken, whatever it is, and there's just this distance that you feel from the Father. Sometimes we're the younger son, and we find ourselves far away from home. And sometimes we are the older son who thinks, that God somehow owes us something because we have made really good decisions. So God somehow owes us something because, um, you know, we've been faithful. God owes us something because we've been a part of his church. God owes us something because we serve. God owes us something because we're generous. God owes us something because whatever it is like that that God owes us and and when something happens like with our health or with a relationship or with our finances or with our vocation or with our education or whatever it is and it doesn't go the way that we thought it was going to go there is this sense of Like I turn my life around, not living the way that I used to live, not doing the things that I used to do. I'm giving my life to you. I'm following you. Come on. Come on, God. Doesn't that count for something? Just another way of saying, God, you owe me. Just like the older brother, you owe me. Sometimes we go through seasons where we are the younger son. Sometimes we go through seasons where we are the older son. But whether you're in a younger son season right now or an older son season right now, all of us need the same thing. We all need God's grace. We all need to join in this heavenly party that breaks out every time a lost sheep is rescued every time a lost coin is found every time a lost son or daughter comes home we can celebrate lots of things and we do we celebrate celebrate so many things but our greatest joy should come when someone who needs to experience grace experiences grace that's the party that we should organize our lives around because that's a party that never ends. That's a party that every single person in the world is invited to. That's the greatest tailgate party that the world has ever seen. And maybe today, as you think about what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, maybe today 
God's message to you is you need to party a little harder. Your life needs to your life needs to circle around this act of forgiveness and grace, this this lost sheep being found, this lost coin being found, this lost son, this lost daughter who's coming home. Like that should be what floats your boat. That should be what gets you excited. That should be how you organize your life. That should be what your life is all about. You need to party more. You need to celebrate more. You need to be more focused on being a part of the mission that God is on to see that happen over and over and over again. But for others of you, it may be today that, that you are the lost sheep that needs to be rescued. You're the lost coin that needs to be found. You're the lost son or the lost daughter that needs to come home. And if that's you, that was some of the people that were in the first service, which is like, yeah, it's time to come home. It's time to come back to the Father. And if that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. God, you know, as we read these stories, you know, you know what we need. You know, you know which of us are in a younger son season of life. You know which of us are in an older son season of life. You know which ones of us need to need to party more, need to organize our life more around your mission in the world to find that which is lost, to bring it home. And for some of us, um, today's the day that, that we need to do what the younger son did and that is realize that we're lost and turn our heart towards home. Open ourselves up to your grace, to your forgiveness, to your cleansing work in our life. And so, Lord, we pray for anyone who needs to come home today that this would be the day that they would simply say yes to your love, to your grace, to your forgiveness. They would simply repent of of the things that are keeping them from you so that they could experience your cleansing work in their lives. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.